Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with John Fort. Carl is on assignment this morning. Today, markets are in the red. The Nasdaq falling more than 2%. Cloud fintech chips all under pressure. So is this a pause in the rally or the sign of a bigger sell-off? We will discuss. And then Uber wants to get into planes and trains. Or maybe Dara just wants his old job back. That story in just a minute. And then Bitcoin 2022 kicks off this morning. We are live in Miami. Today's losses have Bitcoin negative on the year, John. Yeah, Dee, but let's start with the markets. What is going on? Are things going in a different direction? That's what Mike Santoli is looking at this morning. Hi, Mike. Hey, John. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, the uh, the Nasdaq technology, the S&P 500, they're all doing the same thing, which is making use of that little bit of a cushion that got built up uh, from the lows in recent weeks. We've got about a 10 percent rally in the S&P, better than that in Nasdaq and tech. But what's going on here is we have this unease, obviously, about how fast things are moving in the bond market, repricing aggressive Fed expectations and also some defensive leadership characteristics in the overall market. So if, it, if you look at the S&P, it's all about cyclicals not doing well. It's about the, the real defensive areas that have been holding things up. Well, here's within uh, technology and the broader NASDAQ. You can actually see something similar going on. You can pull apart the S&P tech sector, and it's almost 80 percent is software, semiconductors, and Apple. Those three things alone, about 77 percent of tech, you got other tech hardware uh, as part of it. You have IT services. And right now, Apple is the one thing that's continuing to hold up a little bit better. You have uh, software has been weak for months. Semis had really been doing a lot of work, and people took some comfort in the fact that there was still a good macro story there. That's no longer the case, down more than 20 percent from their highs and 5 percent this week. So I think it's a little bit, you know, touch and go as to whether, in fact, uh, this is the start of something uh, deeper or revisiting of the lows. Uh, But so far, it it has been tech underperformance after tech outperformance for three weeks. And so you hear a lot of folks throwing around the term bear market rally, Mike. How do what are some of the signs that analysts might look for to determine if that's what this is? I mean, the Nasdaq is up 16 percent from that mid-March low. Yeah, I mean, it basically the rally was about as far as bear market rallies go in terms of, you know, kind of recovering almost half of the the ground lost. Uh, But it was led by some of the hardest hit stuff. That is a characteristic of bear market rallies, really any rally off a climactic low. I wish there was a satisfying answer of how to kind of decipher it in real terms. It really is one of those things where in retrospect, you can say so. Um, And, you know, I think it is safe to say that tech and growth uh, have lost the mantle of this sort of default leadership. That happened a while ago. I don't think they're going to recover it, even if they would participate in any broad market rebound. Mike, you mentioned Apple has held up better. uh, But what caught my eye is how much better Apple has held up than Microsoft. I mean, there was a time not too long ago where Microsoft edged ahead of 
Apple in the market cap game. But now there's a half a trillion dollar difference between the two. Um, in fact, it uh, looks like uh, Microsoft and Alphabet are closer together than Microsoft and Apple. Any uh, rumblings you're hearing about why that might be? It's fascinating, John, because Apple also is, is due to have the slowest you know, top and bottom line growth this year of some of those major companies. It's the one that does just seem to have the most impenetrable balance sheet, the massive buyback story. And I think also very crucial when it comes to the comparison with Microsoft is Microsoft rushed to a much bigger valuation premium over the prior two years than Apple did. Now, Apple got more expensive than its history, but it was really Microsoft where people felt like it was this one decision stock trading well above 30 times, 35 times forward earnings. And so I think what's been going on, just broadly speaking, is a compression of valuations that has hit the areas that had richer multiples hardest. Yeah, really interesting where that compression hits and when. Mike, thank you. Let's stick with stocks for today's feed. Our next guest saying cash flow is king and queen with this current volatility. Names like Alphabet and Adobe are ones to watch. Joining us now, CNBC contributor Low Tony of Plexo Capital. Low, g- good to see you. Um, why uh, Adobe and Alphabet in particular? Is it really the cash flow part or is there something else to it? Yeah, well, look, John, first, thanks for having me. When we think about what's happening within the economy, just all of the different dials that are being turned, the, you know, the geopolitical situation, which is so unfortunate, the inflationary environment, the interest rate hikes that are upcoming, just looking at commodity prices, looking at a flat yield curve, we really feel that that environment has really punished the stocks that are responsible for a lot of the growth, mainly those technology stocks. And so those are valued more looking ahead to their future earnings. And we feel now is the time to really focus in and start to pick certain stocks. You know, I think back to your comment, John, about is it time to unbundle FANG? And I think what that really represents is we can't think of just tech as this group anymore. We really have to become selective. And so our selections are those companies that are really benefiting from solid, predictable growth as well as great cash flow. And two of those that do it really well are both Adobe and Alphabet. A couple of the things I think are interesting about those names are the way that they are approaching small business needs, right? Small business over the past couple of years has seen the need to go digital with an urgency that they hadn't before. Adobe's got a Shopify-like approach and lots of data. And, you know, Alphabet's Google similarly not bogged down in a lot of this metaverse talk. Google was mapping the actual world and is able now to give insights into where people are gathering, where people are shopping, both in the real world, physical world and digital. Is that valuable? Oh, without question, I think those are two very good points to make that highlight in particular Adobe. I even like to think of Adobe not only serving small businesses, but think about individuals, the creator economy. Adobe arguably was the first pure play to be able to benefit from this trend of individuals beginning to create their own businesses around themselves, whether that be freelancing or whether that be influencers within social media developing memes. I mean, that really is facilitated by Adobe. This is a $20 billion plus market that's growing at over 30% a year. And when we look at Adobe, you know, great cash flow. Um, You know, you think about the fact that they've got a really clean balance sheet. They've got, you know, almost $7 billion last year in free cash flow. And 90% of their revenue 
is recurring and extremely predictable. So we really like Adobe a lot for some of those reasons highlighted on your end. Same with Alphabet. Look, you know, Alphabet mm -hmm. having all 140 billion in cash on the balance sheet, very little debt, being able to, mm -hmm. even though they're the number three player in cloud, still be able to grow that business 45% year over year. Um, that's just, that's massive. Right, Lo, you know, you're, you're choosing sort of the larger profitable perhaps more safe names in this kind of environment, but with the 10-year yield touching 266 this morning, is it as simple as buy those names and sell the unprofitable smaller ones? Um, or is there an opportunity to pick among them and perhaps find the next Amazon, so to speak? Yeah, everyone's been looking at this. And, I, you know, Deidre, I, I like that point because, again, being extremely selective, I think, is going to be important. If we were to look at some of those names that have been, you know, beaten up a little bit, those would be the higher growth stories, particularly around enterprise software. Within some of those names, we like companies like Sentinel One. We like even GitHub. We were really pleased to see the results that GitHub showed for this past quarter in their earnings report, just kind of really putting up some solid numbers, showing that GitHub doesn't really have, you know, too much of a concentrated dependence on some of their larger enterprise companies and that their freemium model of giving away the lower end version and then graduating people up is working. Mm -hmm. So we do like mm -hmm. some of those businesses because when we look at the fundamentals, you know, nothing has changed within yeah. the fundamentals. You look at the IT directors, they're still predicting strong spend on these types of services. Just want to point out, you're meaning GitLab, right? GitLab, excuse me. I, I might have said GitHub. Yes, thank you. <laughs> That's okay, Lo. Um, right, you make an interesting point. The fundamentals haven't changed, but we are going into earnings season and fears are rising about lower economic growth, even a recession. So is it possible that earnings could kind of throw off those arguments and you're expecting something less than... So the thing that we have to look for within the upcoming earnings are the ability to be able to lap some very strong comps from last year and then being able to drill down and really dissect three things. Number one, is the market available to these businesses? Was it really the market or was that just a temporary uptick because of COVID? Number two, how much revenue was pulled forward that was only short term, meaning how much revenue was pulled forward in 20 and 21 that really would have been realized over the next two years anyway. And then third, and this is where I think the most exciting opportunity is, those companies where some revenue was pulled forward, but it was mainly around things like infrastructure, building out better cybersecurity for defense. Those are longer term transitions that enterprises have to plan for. And so for those companies that were able to pull some forward, we still see longer term benefit from being able to benefit from the companies that still need to implement that type of infrastructure. Yeah. So we'll need to watch the earnings closely to see how well these companies are performing because they're coming up on some really tough comps to lap. Tough comps, but some of these trends are durable. Low, thank you. Low, Tony. Thank you for having me. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's an Uber. The ride-hailing app plans to offer train and bus offerings in the U.K. as early as the summer with flight bookings later this year and perhaps hotels on the way in 2023. Uber will not provide the services themselves, but plans to announce various partners in the coming months as the company follows through on CEO Dara Khosrow Shahi's super app vision that he outlined way back in 2018. John, Uber still missed expectations for profitability guidance for the first quarter. We joked at the beginning of the show that maybe Dara wants his old job back. This is increasingly <laughs> 
looking a little bit like an OTA, an Expedia, where you go to an app and you can book all certain, all different things. To me, it doesn't look like a super app. But for investors, importantly, John, maybe this is not such a bad thing. Dara created a lot of value over at Expedia. And Uber, I think there's long been the question as to, is it really a disruptor anymore? I think that question was asked way back at the IPO, and investors have voted by keeping the stock well under its IPO price. Well, it could be if they can make this work. It makes plenty of sense from a a process flow perspective, right? Like people are booking Ubers to go to the airport, they get on a plane, and then they get an Uber on the other side in many cases. Why can't Uber keep all of that within the same experience and get a commission from the other travel providers in the middle? And then they don't have Mm -hmm. to rely just on uh, the end user for revenue. Uh, You know, if they take the eye off the ball and can't really solve for the labor challenges involved in this market, and, you know, the food delivery they're trying to do and the trucking and whatnot, all of that, the complexity could bog them down. But, hey, makes sense to me, D. You know what's interesting about this is, in a way, this could eventually put Uber in competition with another sharing economy company, uh, and that would be Airbnb. Many years ago, I remember that Brian Chesky was talking about perhaps Airbnb would get into the flight booking business. They have the ecosystem for it. Those plans went away as, as well as some others as they focused during the pandemic. But these gig economy companies, as they become a destination for users, it's interesting to think into what they could expand into. Like I said, not the definition of a super app that mm-hmm. I think of one, like the WeChat from Tencent or the Weixin in Chinese, um, but maybe the American version. Yeah, they got to they gotta lard a whole lot more things in there before there'll be an Asian-style yeah. super app. But hey, Airbnb doing this would make even more sense. It's not like you book a car to the airport before you book your flight. You do it the other way around, but you might find the Airbnb where you want to stay before you book your flight, and so they could get a piece of that for yeah, sure. Yeah, and people go to Airbnb to search already, right? Yeah. There's a big search engine involved. Exactly. Still to come, we're live in Miami for Bitcoin 2022. Meanwhile, uh, stocks remain in the red. The Nasdaq near the lows of the session, down 2.5%. Tech Check is just getting started. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com.
Let's get a gut check on ARK coming off its worst day in weeks. It's down another 6 percent in the current session. Roku continues to drag down that ETF, now down another 8 percent, making that a 48 percent dip year to date. But that's just the beginning. Coinbase, Block, Spotify, Teladoc, Tesla, all among ARK's top picks and biggest holdings, and all are down 3 percent or more today, as much as nearly 8 percent for Block. ARK is now down 10 percent since Monday's close. Yeah. And uh, speaking of software, I spoke with Atlassian co-founder and co-CEO Scott Farquhar this week ahead of his Team 22 event keynote, which he'll be giving today right as Tech Check ends. He told me that because the company makes collaboration software, Atlassian's got good data on when and how people are working. Overall, since the pandemic, we are working longer hours than pre-COVID, but shorter than in 2021. So there's just sort of a more of a collaboration tax when people are trying to work out how to collaborate in this remote environment. And uh, though it's shifted a little bit earlier in 2022, you can see actually the total amount of time that people are working has decreased um, you know, in a few minutes and as people have managed to work out how to collaborate better. And looking at this and chatting with our customers, um, we've been really inspired uh, as a company to live in this new remote world and build products for our customers that uh, reflect and help them to overcome this collaboration tax. Uh, Farquhar told me Atlassian has leaned into remote work, which I guess makes sense since it's based in Australia with employees all over. But he said 10% of employees in the U.S. have moved to a different state during the pandemic, and that flexibility has had an even bigger impact on Atlassian's new hires. Giving our employees that flexibility has been life-changing for for many of them. And... uh, if I think about the people we've hired you know, over the last 12 months, 40, uh, 42%, I think, or 44% are now working uh, somewhere more than two hours from one of our traditional office locations. And so if you think about, you know, the war for talent is real, it's difficult to find staff. One in every two of our new staff members would not have been someone we could have hired previously uh, without this new policy. If you were able to see that graphic, it was actually showing the spread in workers over time. A lot more people moving to the Midwest and Texas, for example. Now, Atlassian's about a $76 billion market cap company. The stock is way off its fall highs, but still more than 20% above where it was 12 months ago, D. Yeah, and up over 100% over the last two years, John. Uh, you know, Google employees went back to work this week, and our Jen Elias on the digital team did a great piece on how there was some hesitancy. You also read things like people are going in just to sit on Zooms all day again uh, in the office. Certainly offices like ours here are equipped for that. I'm skeptical, though, that in the long term, uh, John, people don't go all the way back already. You see early indications of the collaboration that does happen in person um, that you just don't get on a remote. But that talent war is real. And especially I, th- I think for an Australian company, though, is going to always operate a little bit differently than some of the companies even here in Silicon Valley that talk a lot about hybrid or remote work, but are slowly going back to the status quo pre-pandemic. Oh, for sure. And, and interesting to remember, Atlassian was one of the pioneers Uh, of what's being called product-led growth, the idea that uh, certain kinds of software companies can grow and grow quickly and grow for a long time without spending a whole lot on sales and marketing. They spend a fraction of what your typical Mm. enterprise software company does, but they grow quickly. And, you know, over time, I'm coming to realize that different companies have different cultures 
and therefore yeah. different needs to feed those and something that works for one company, not necessarily for another. So there's not necessarily going to be a universal rule. Everybody's got to have a hybrid or, or remote work environment or everybody's got to come back to work. But uh, as you mentioned, companies like Google and Apple, Apple especially, still working through that. Yeah, anyways, it was a great interview. John, we're going to turn to Miami and crypto now. Uh, Miami, the city has become the unofficial crypto capital of the U.S., but San Francisco and New York, they actually still reign supreme when it comes to total dollars and venture funding, despite the noise out of cities like Miami and even Austin. Miami, though, is growing at the fastest rate, according to PitchBook data, and that's where we find our Kate Rooney, who is there for Bitcoin 2022. Where else would you be, Kate? I'm sure the hype machine is in full effect. I love how you described it this morning. Miami gets most improved player. <laughs> most improved player. We call that the MIP versus uh, the MVP. But we did get the latest sign of that hype this morning. The city unveiling the crypto version of the Wall Street bull right behind me here. The industry is very much right now the center of the tech scene here in Miami. I spoke to investors who have moved here recently and businesses that are taking Bitcoin for everyday payments. And it's becoming more of a status symbol and proof that you belong to this growing crypto crowd. At Freehold, that's a bar in Wynwood, the owner there says there was demand from customers to pay in Bitcoin. So they started offering it. The group, he says, tends to be younger and they tend to spend more. I think it's a cutting edge thing. Um, I think it's different. Um, just like 10 years ago when somebody would pay with a black Amex, I think like paying with Bitcoin or crypto is, is, a, is something new and different and eye-catching to where even the bartenders are taken aback. People in South Florida are buying some more expensive items in crypto as well. Bob Dennison runs Dennison Yachting. He says he's sold roughly a dozen yachts so far in Bitcoin. Half of those were last year. So there's a lot more like let's get out there and do things uh, type of a spirit with the crypto crowd that we have. And, and we love that. We love seeing people take a yacht and actually go places that are really exciting instead of just hanging out at a marina. So maybe more risk takers? Yes, I would say younger, risk taking and more adventurous. Let's go do something nobody's done before. And guys, there's some other signs of the crypto boom here in Miami, aside from just paying with it. This might look like your average pickup basketball game. The catch, though, you got to own a certain cryptocurrency to get in. Members of Miami Tech Runs tell me this Sunday game is where networking and deal making happens. The price to join was 200 bucks when it started. It's now closer to $1,200 based on a spike in that cryptocurrency. You guys, people have compared this right now to Silicon Valley a couple decades ago. I talked to one investor who likened it to freshman year of college. There's still a lot of optimism, a lot of excitement, and people are still open to making new friends and connections. But John and Deirdre, as you guys know, the other part of Silicon Valley that might sound familiar, a potential bubble. Back to you. Yeah, you, you certainly hear both sides. And Kate, the industry, um, especially over the last year, has become increasingly divided. You've got the Bitcoin maximalists or the maxis versus the Web3 crowd. Put another way, Jack Dorsey versus Andreessen Horowitz. Can't help but note last year, Dorsey and Elon Musk were there. Uh, how is that playing out on the ground this year? It's interesting. Anybody that's coming to this conference behind me here is a fan of Bitcoin. Last year, I was told there was something in the language in the speaker's agreement that you couldn't talk about any other cryptocurrency besides Bitcoin. Like you said, it's grown immensely 
from just the days of Bitcoin. This is really a convention for those who might be maximalists, might believe in the long-term value of Bitcoin. But there are hundreds, if not thousands, of other use cases for this. Anything from, like you said, Web3 to even DAOs or the idea of tokenizing a pickup basketball league. So that hype is really clear here. It also seems that there's not a lot of people you know, going into the conference. There are, but you know, they're behind me here. A lot of them have just come to Miami to, to come to some of the events and to network. So even if you're not a Bitcoin believer, it tends to be the place where you're coming to network and do as many meetings as you can. Yeah, and the crypto parties. Don't forget those, Kate. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Be sure to check out Crypto World, CNBC's digital show on all things crypto by heading to cnbc.com slash crypto world. John. I don't know. It seems more like Vegas than Silicon Valley to me. <laughs> well, coming up, uh, more on the weakness in chips. The Nasdaq uh, bit off the lows, but still down two and a third percent. Tech check. Be right back. You should be worried. Um, we are worried. We're paranoid. Overall, the U.S. equity market maybe has 5% upside from these lights between now and the end of the year. Yeah. Should we be uh, going into recession, it would be you know, meaningful downside. But that is not the base case right now. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. I'm John Fort with Deirdre Bosa. We continue to keep our eyes on the market. The Nasdaq pairing the worst off about 2.4% at the moment. The S&P down about one and a quarter. The Dow off a little less than 1%, but Salesforce, Microsoft, and Disney leading that to the downside. Meanwhile, Moderna and Datadog, the biggest laggards on the Nasdaq 100 this week. More on some of the weakness we're seeing in just a minute. But now it's time for a news update. Morgan Brennan has that for us. Hey, Morgan. Hey, John. Well, here is what is happening at this hour. JetBlue shares cutting losses after the carrier offered to buy Spirit Airlines. Spirit shares are also rebounding, but Frontier, the airline that had agreed to merge with Spirit, is now down about 10%. JetBlue's CEO telling CNBC last hour that a Spirit merger with his company will be better for consumers. When you scratch behind the service and you, you look at what the regulators are trying to do, which is to make sure, as a result of these combinations, fares uh, go down rather than up. We actually believe a JetBlue spirit combination will have a more profound and a more permanent effect uh, nationwide on lower fares and a, a, a merger of uh, the ultra low cost carriers. Tilray shares meantime are surging about 12%. The cannabis company reporting a surprise quarterly profit, though revenues were shy of estimates. Tilray also announcing an exclusive deal to sell hemp powders in Whole Foods. And mortgage applications are falling again as interest rates continue to surge. A key index down another 6% in the latest week. Application volumes are now down 41% over the last year. 
Deirdre, back to you. Morgan, thank you. And as we've been looking at the Nasdaq, it is now down more than 2%, 2.4%. And what's turning into a pretty significant pullback for tech stocks? Christina Partzanalvelis has what's moving in that sector. Christina. Yeah, we, we're seeing the tech sector actually extending yesterday's declines. you got growth, underperforming value. Uh, and you mentioned the Nasdaq down over 2%. And this is bond yields move higher. Investors pretty much are waiting to hear from the Fed's plan to raise interest rates and, of course, the tightening policy. So the FANG pack is all in the red. You've got Apple, Meta, Alphabet, all at least 2% lower. And, of course, communication companies that rely on direct consumer spending also taking a hit in that FANG uh, basket, Amazon and Netflix, uh, trending well above uh, 2% lower. And shares of Twitter, though, I want to mention Twitter still trending higher after Elon Musk vowed to make significant changes after admitting his new 9% stake in Twitter is not passive. And then we've got the semiconductor se- sector, which continues to weigh down on tech, reversing a mostly positive start to the week. you got the SMH ETF hitting a low we haven't seen in about a month. And then investors are not only dealing with cyclical concerns, like a slowdown in handsets and PCs, along with continued supply chain strains, but you also have the fears of inflation weighing on that. NVIDIA, AMD lagging in that group. You can see shares down well above a 4% for Qualcomm. And then Wisdom Tree cloud computing ETF down almost about 5%. you got constituents Shopify plunging more than 8%. That stock is down over 50% this year. You got you guys mentioned that, but Datadog Snowflake also lower over 7% right now. Fed tightening, inflation, valuation compression, all factors for this sell-off. Back over to you, Dee. Thanks, Christina. And although tech is sharply lower today, our next guest sees upside in the long term, like many others, noting that large tech companies generate twice as much free cash flow as the rest of the S&P. Joining us now, Credit Suisse Chief U.S. Equity Strategist Jonathan Golub. Jonathan, good morning to you. We started the show talking about the large and mega cap companies. They may be the safest bets in a rising rate, slowing growth environment. Where in tech do you see the greatest, not just safety, but opportunity? Well, I mean, first of all, there's, there's so many things to unpack here. If you look over the last year, the mega cap um, tech-related companies, you're talking about the, the largest five names, um, have delivered better revenues, better improvement at margins, and a, a bigger movement in stock multiples because they actually seem to be safer names. So to the extent that things get dicey, um, those names look uh, look pretty attractive. And as you know, the valuations, and they're not all exactly the same, the valuations on these names by and large are somewhat reasonable. And if you look at the, you know, the rest of the, the tech universe or, or smaller names, they've had a, they've had a harder time. And, and again, w- slightly weaker revenue, slightly weaker margins and, um, and P multiple um, contraction. I, I do think the big story, though, is how all of these names um, do, when, you know, if we either go into a recession or perhaps what I think is a more likely case that the economy runs hot for the next while on inflation and the fact that the Fed is not doing enough to, to bring it under control and um, and how to think about tech in that context. Jonathan, when you look down a few layers, so when you look at a company like Datadog, which is one of the biggest laggards in the Nasdaq this week, yet it has some of the strongest fundamentals and even its last quarter was you know, relatively pretty good in the enterprise software space. What does that tell you about some of those smaller names and tech as a as a whole? Yeah, and I can't speak to the individual name, and I, I don't I don't cover the stock, but but it's it's clear that that not only in general are these smaller names seeing weaker fundamentals, and I can't speak to Datadog, but but the uh, the multiples are contracting on them, so it's quite possible 
that some of these smaller companies that are putting up the, the numbers in terms of their earnings, that they're kind of getting um, grouped together with, with other tech names that are under, you know, under pressure, especially those that perhaps have weaker earnings or, or what have you. But um, I think the key is to look for, for revenues. The, the, you know, one of the things that have made those bigger names so much stronger all around is that they actually are delivering faster top line growth. And, you know, we, you know, there's a lot of things you can fake, but you can't fake top line growth. Or if you do, it's a lot harder. So, huh. um, you know, that that's something that, that we think is important to uh, to look at. Jonathan, I want to skate as close as possible to getting you to talk about an individual name without getting you to talk about an individual name. Because within Tech Plus is Meta, Facebook's parent. That stock is down 33% year to date, more than 27% over the last 12 months. It's not, it's suffered worse than everything else in Tech Plus. Do you believe that something has fundamentally changed in the marketplace of tech where maybe you have to take apart some of the Tech Plus names and they might not all benefit the same? Or perhaps uh, has, the, has the disappointment in, in one or more of those names been overdone? Hey, listen, as you know, one of the things that makes technology so much more exciting than investing in, let's say, you know, energy or, or, or something else is that, that these names are just incredibly idiosyncratic and unique in their prospects and their, their business models. I mean, you can have a lousy tech environment and pick winners that can, that can do incredibly well, whereas if, if the price of oil goes up or down, that's going to dictate the, the whole sector. So, you know, uh, you know, if you look at, you know, what the natural pairing with people would, would think is, okay, it's a social media company. It, it looks, you know, what's it most closely grouped with? And yet its stock price may be very, uh, very different. But if you look at the top five tech plus names, um, it's somewhat surprising to me that NVIDIA has replaced Facebook in terms of top five by market cap, you know, given this underperformance. So when we're looking at the performance of these names and their characteristics, you know, it, it's a little bit of a, of a moving target. And, and, you know, in Facebook, as much as it's weight on the group, it's, it's, you know, it's not the whole story. There's a lot going on. Right. Well, now tell me what you're doing with the idea that we visited multiple times over the past two years, that consumer behavior shifted in a significant way. Consumer behavior, small business behavior, enterprise behavior toward digital processes, digital payments, migration to the cloud. So much of the valuation benefit that so many companies saw from that as people were like, oh, the world is moving this way, has now been erased. So based on, was that idea valid and it's time to bargain hump based on that thesis? Or are you rethinking that thesis altogether? Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what. So let me tell you where we're, we're spending most of our, our, our time as, as strategists. I mean, right now we have this very strange threat where half of the world is convinced that we're going into a recession and half of the world um, thinks that we have an inflationary problem. And my personal view along that is that this inflation is going to run really hot. And in many ways, what you find in the tech space, for good and for bad, right, is that they are not a, a big winner or loser from an economy that does better or worse. Like I mentioned before, this is the most idiosyncratic space. If you are a guy who loves looking at individual stories, this is a space to do it in. But um, there are areas, if you think this is going to run, if the economy runs hot, semiconductors are clearly the big win overall, putting everything else aside. If you believe that things are going to soften up on the economy and we're going to move towards a recession, then you definitely want to be rotating towards 
larger cap names and um, semi, you know, I'm sorry, and, and software names. Matter of fact, if you think things are going, going to um, really rip on the economy, you probably are going to want to buy some of those companies that have weaker revenue growth or, or no profits and, and hope for a turnaround in a really strong market. So um, we've been doing a lot of work at stress testing. As a matter of fact, we published a report um, only a couple of weeks ago what is the list of companies within every sector, but including tech names, um, for a recessionary outlook? What are the wins for one that, that avoids a recession? And we list all the individual yeah. securities there. And we're stress testing that with our, our security analysts. Yeah, Jonathan, great nuance there. Jonathan Golub, thanks. After the break. Thank you. How do you do, fellow kids? Let's talk tech trends. TikTok versus Snapchat. The iPhone's still king and 51 different ways to spell Cheez-It. All of that's investment advice. Well, stock's lower right now. As we mentioned, NASDAQ down 2.5%. We'll be right back. If you're looking for what's growing, what's next, why not ask a teenager? Piper Sandler out with its annual teen survey. They look at crypto adoption, interest in the metaverse, as well as which platforms users are spending the most time on. To get some investment ideas, Steve Kovac has been digging through it and has some takeaways. Steve. Hey there, Dee. Yeah, uh, two slices of this survey stuck out to me, and it really doesn't look good uh, if you're uh, a meta fan. Uh, On the social media front, TikTok is the new favorite app for teens passing Snapchat for the first time, and Instagram ranks third, and Facebook is a distant fifth. But Instagram still commands the most attention with more engagement than both Snapchat and TikTok, though with TikTok creeping up on Instagram, it explains why we heard last week Meta hired that political consulting firm to plant those bad stories about TikTok, and why they're so focused on beating TikTok with Instagram Reels. That's, that's really the, the focus here, Deep. Now, on the metaverse front, this is also really cool. This one really surprised me. More than a quarter of teens already own a virtual reality headset. That's way more than anyone thought. But as far as how often they use it, only 5% say they use it every single day, which tells me the idea of VR and the metaverse may excite the younger crowd, but their interest burns out really quickly. And, of course, the smartphone is still king, and we're waiting for that game-changing hardware that can make that VR experience that catapults the metaverse into the mainstream, guys. Yeah, you know, Steve, it's interesting. Mark Zuckerberg, he's not young anymore. He's got kids who are young, right? So I don't know any young people who are that excited about the metaverse. They're excited about, you know, playing, you know, Minecraft and and Roblox. But maybe, uh, I don't know, D, you you think uh, this actually uh, says something about the metaverse hype? Maybe it's coming from millennials. Yeah, I'm curious. What is considered a VR device? I can't imagine that 25% of teens have, like, a VR headset. Do they consider a phone one of those? No. Well, Deirdre, remember, if you think back to last Christmas, I did this report on how the Oculus headset from Meta was one of the hottest Christmas gadgets uh, under the trees uh, on Christmas morning. So, I mean, there's, there's definitely evidence behind it that people bought a lot of these. But, again, the usage is what really shocked me even more. Some spoiled teens there. Yeah, right, exactly. John? I mean, they get a they get a headset yeah. for Christmas and barely use it. <laughs> Something tells me they undersampled certain neighborhoods. Steve, thank you. Thanks. Guys. And as we head to break, want to check out shares of Intel. This morning, suspending operation in Russia. We'll note last month they suspended shipments to customers, winding down operations in an attempt to minimize disruptions to its global supply chain. Just the latest uh, Western company to do that. 
Tech Check is back in a moment. Day three of Elon Musk and Twitter. Stock is up about nine-tenths of a percent in a down market that started the day in negative territory. And one of the service's most requested features, the edit button, may finally become a reality, if you haven't heard. But if you are on the platform, you probably have. The company now claims it has been working on the feature since last year and will test it out in the coming months. It just took Elon Musk taking a 9% stake and tweeting the poll to announce it, I guess, John. Um, you know, some folks are coming out talking about the dangers of an edit button, which, yes, seem very clear to see. I don't know how seriously to take this. It's kind of been a running joke. But I do think that in the future, I don't know if it's the far future, if you see sort of a Twitter on blockchain, maybe there's a way of tracking edits, making it more transparent that would make this make sense? Either way, it seems to me it should not take that long to design the process for an edit button. Whether you decide to do it or not, it shouldn't take that long. I don't want no. one, for the record. Oh. I, I'm, I may be the minority here. Well, we'll, we'll save that for another day. Um, <laughs> fun debate. Up next... A check on semiconductors. That sector has been hit hard in the last week, re-approaching its 2022 lows. We'll be right back. The Nasdaq is off session lows, but still below that 14,000 level and off more than 2% today. The tech sector off 5% in the last week. The center of the selling, while well, investors have been focused on chips, the SOXX ETF is down 13% since March 29th. Our next guest is bullish on names like NVIDIA, NXP, and Micron, rating all three of those a buy. Needham Semis analyst. Rajvindra Gill joins us now. Uh, good morning to you. We were just speaking to Jonathan Golub at Credit Suisse and telling us, you know, the traders should sell chips in a slowing economy. Um, but of course, we talked to the CEOs and longer term investors who say that this could be a really great opportunity because of the secular shift and the rise of IoT. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the, the, the buy side sentiment, the investor sentiment is far, far more negative than, than the sell side the sell side estimates. And I think the a lot of the investors I've spoken to are uh, expecting some sort of um, impact uh, 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 with respect to either inflation uh, affecting consumer demand and that kind of spilling over to some of the secular growth markets like data center or, or cloud or, or high performance computing. So there is a, a kind of a disconnect between what the companies are saying and the outlooks they're providing which are pretty much been beaten raise uh, quarters and what the sell side estimates are modeling in for next year, sell side estimates have actually increased 6% um, over the last few months for, for uh, calendar 23. Yet um, the price to earnings multiple has contracted almost 40%. Um, and that really reflects uh, investors who are, who are quite nervous, quite concerned about the fact that we are potentially late in the semiconductor cycle and if demand starts to slow down because of, of inflation or higher interest rates, that we could be uh, in an overcapacity situation, um, maybe in 2023 or, or down the road. And I think that's what's been pressuring the shares uh, of late. Well, speaking of that, how are inventories looking? So it, it's, it's an interesting story. I think you have to get behind the, the hood a little bit. Um, finished goods inventory at the internal chip companies is actually reducing. It's declining. 
Um, they are, we are seeing some signs of, of increase in inventory and in things like work in progress or raw materials as they set up for, uh, to make new, new chips and, and, and uh, accommodate for new production down the road. But the finished goods inventory and internal inventory for chip companies is, is being sold. Um, anything is, whatever is being built is being sold and is being uh, consumed by, by the consumer. Um, and so uh, inventory levels, whether it's at the chip company, at the distribution channel, is still at very record low levels. And all the uh, companies I talk to who are fabulous, who are outsourcing um, their, their wafers to foundries, um, capacity conditions are going to remain tight for until another 12, if not 24 months. I mean, most of the companies are talking about not bringing on new capacity until late 2023, if not further. Um, and so if demand continues to hold up, you know, driven by a lot of these secular growth trends, we talked about edge computing on, on IoT, cloud infrastructure, high performance computing, um, then demand is going to outstrip supply uh, for at least another 12 to 24 months. And that dynamic is not at all reflected mm -hmm. in, in the current stock prices or currently reflected in the valuation multiples. That's interesting. It's a tricky balance, Rajvendra. Uh, yet so many billions and billions of dollars is earmarked in investment that will take, you know, three to four to five years to show up. Do you think that that stays in place? Um, I, I think that uh, there is a push to build domestic semiconductor manufacturing. Um, you know, obviously, the U.S. Uh, uh, government, they, the, the House of Representatives, the Senate, they passed the, the CHIPS Act, which is a $52 billion uh, act. We're waiting for that to be funded. A big chunk of that money is dedicated and allocated to um, building a manufacturing uh, here in the U.S. Um, so um, that's a positive in the long term, and it, and it emphasizes the importance of semiconductors uh, to the digital economy. But ramping those fabs is going to take take quite some time. Right. And um, well, and the capacity conditions are going to remain tight. So as well, long as we're going to leave it there. We're going to have to leave it there, but thank you for the insight, uh, Rajvendra Gill. Thank you. Now, a headline on Amazon that might surprise you is next. Plus, don't forget to check out the Tech Check podcast. We're back in a moment. One more thing or two. Amazon HR exec Pam Greer, part of the team tasked with leading the company's initiative to become Earth's best employer, is now leaving. Interesting timing after the union vote in Staten Island last week. But here's something else. Today, LinkedIn also named Amazon number one on its list of top companies to work in the United States. Our partner, Just Capital, a nonprofit that measures how corporations perform on the public's priorities, ranking Amazon lower for how they invest in employees. But that's not affecting what LinkedIn is measuring, which is how much people want to work there. You can go to CNBC.com to read more about that, Dee. Yeah, Amazon is famous for those six pagers at the corporate level. Everything has to be done, not in a PowerPoint presentation, but the six pagers, which I know has uh, daunted some people. But interesting stats. Meanwhile, John, the Nasdaq down about two, one third of a percent. Uh, we've got earnings kicking off for the banks next week. Tech a few weeks after that. We'll get to it all. The halftime report starts right now. Let's get to the judge. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. 
The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.